At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome back to The Ancient World, a podcast with discussions and presentations of Greek myth and philosophy, symbolic readings of the biblical stories, and the renewal and rebirth of the ancient treasures in the Florentine Renaissance. And today we have a special new guest, Dr. Mark Vernon. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Nice to say hello. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Vernon lives in London. He's a doctor in ancient philosophy and also has degrees in physics and theology. And he's a prolific writer and a psychotherapist. And his latest book is called The Secret History of Christianity, which is a great book. And he has also just started a YouTube and podcast series about the Divine Comedy in connection with the 700-year anniversary of the completion of Dante's masterpiece. So first of all, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you very much. It's nice to come on. I, the interests you highlight there are very much my own. So mm. um, it's great to be able to tease some of them out, I hope. Yes, indeed. And this is all of this is very much my my interest and things I've been talking about on this podcast for a year as well. And it's a kind of a, it's a growing area of, of discovery and also this whole thing of looking at old things and, and discovering things that maybe one could think are distant, but then you see they're very pertinent and real now and helpful. So uh, a bit of the background for, for your book, especially was that I read the book twice last year, actually <laughs> I started on it. So that was in the early summer. And then, I discovered that, or I, I found out that I don't know the biblical stories good enough at all. My memories were kind of 20 years old. <laughs> Some memories are like a, as a five-year-old and you're with crayons and you're drawing the burning bush. I think I have to update my, my impression of the biblical stories. So it, it motivated me to actually read through the whole of the biblical stories again over a period of three, four months. And then I read your book again, and then it gave me even more. So that was a big thing. And it opened up this whole world of um, the connections between the intellectual, rational, and then the symbolic and the spiritual. And then it further led to this deep dive into Dante's paradise. And then now the church founders <laughs> and the patristic era. So it, it keeps growing. So um, I thought the main topic would be your book. But before that, I would want to say congratulations with your with your new show with uh, or your video series with Dante. It's uh, how do you feel? I've been watching five of them now from the beginning. How mm -hmm. is the journey for you now going through it? Yeah, well, I it was partly because I recognized uh, I, I read somewhere that uh, it was the 700th anniversary of the completion of the Paradise, um, and I thought, oh, that's you know a good hook. Um, but the book was well, all three books the inferno the purgatorio and the paradiso were all you know tremendously um influential on me i i read them at a, a particular moment in my life in a group with someone who really guided us through them and that really helped me massively was um, that the temenos academy or? yeah through, through, through the temenos academy yeah and um, this group that meets here particularly in london mm. um so how long was that ago? Uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe five years ago, I think now. Mm. Um, something like that. And, you know, the Divine Comedy being one of these things which I knew I had to read. I tried, not really managed to get into it. Um, but mm. particularly with one of the teachers called Jeremy Nadler, mm -hmm. which is N-A-Y-D-L-E-R. Jeremy Nadler. Jeremy always has amazing things to say. And so going through the Divine Comedy with him over a period of a few months, um, sort of took us on the journey of it uh, and so it became not just something we studied but something that profoundly 
affected us. You know, I can remember being so relieved when we got out of hell yeah. um, and then really moved, you know, through paradise, in particularly the paradise. Um, yeah. It started to speak to me in ways that I've not really anticipated because I don't know it's quite common. I don't know if you think the same. It's quite common for people to say, yes, the, the inferno's got lots of deep insights and the, par- the purgatory, you know, it's pretty interesting. But when we get to the paradise, we don't really know what to make of it now. Mm. Um, and I thought, no, no, we absolutely, you know, if we can't make something a paradise, you know, we really are lost. Um, yeah. So what I'm trying to do in my podcast now, having read, gone through it myself as we've undergone the journey um, maybe three times since, um, is offer a commentary that I hope really helps people to get a feel for the inner transformation that Dante undergoes step mm. by step through each of the books um, so that he, he he sees more, he understands more. And that is precisely what keeps the journey going, which I think is a journey that we can undergo now as well. Um, mm. So that's very much the thrust um, of the, um, the podcast through 2020. Mm, yeah, uh, I've really enjoyed like the the psychological perspective that you use on it, like and and you have so much to, to draw on from your experience as well it seems like so you can uh compared to more academic kind of uh, intellectual classicist perspective there's you have so relatable things so i've really enjoyed um, mm. and i'm curious okay, yeah. how it's going to go like the <laughs> it's a long journey through through the inferno it's um <laughs> so how long time are you spending planning on spending on it well the other thing is i wanted a bit of a spiritual discipline for the year um, and so um, the idea is to sort of spend some time each day with Dante um, mm. and, you know, make some notes. And then a canto, a particular, any particular canto can sort of take shape in my mind over two or three days and then I can say something about it. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's partly me wanting to undergo the journey again, uh, but with a different focus this time in producing mm-hmm. the podcast as well. Any new surprises just starting the first well six episodes now i think you have out um i think that uh i don't know i've been i'm uh i'm, I'm sort of slightly ahead of the podcast as mm. it's online um and so i've actually in my own reading just got to the city of dis mm. um, which is one of the the huge transition points with the towers in the inferno <laughs> yeah Going and towers. um i don't know i feel like i've uh sort of discerns that little bit more what's going on um, with this whole thing about the city of Dis and Virgil and Dante almost losing hope mm. um, and then the angel appearing. Um, you know, it's it's a very spectacular couple of cantos, eight and nine. Mm. Um, and, uh, but quite what it means, you know, how to relate to it is always a bit of a struggle. Um, but I, I hope that this time I'm just that bit closer to... Uh, you know, almost sort of perceiving for myself what that might be about. So mm. I've tried to communicate that um, in the podcasts for eight and nine, which will go up uh, in a week or so. Mm. It seems like it's a, it's a work you can, I mean, you can go the whole circle. Like, I mean, you have the whole circle movement in the work. So especially if you, when you've done the whole journey through paradise and you've seen Virgin Mary on top of the white rose, and then when you start in Inferno, in the Lost Woods, and you know that, it starts with Virgin, as you told, Virgin Mary with Lucia and then Beatrice, and kind of that's how the whole story starts. You, it, it kind of you have this saying that you when you read through the whole Divine Comedy, you're ready to start reading the Divine Comedy. But I think you can even right, read yeah, it nice. several times because you yeah, there's so much detail in every. Well, these stories, you know, the great stories, whether it be uh, things like Divine Comedy, the Bible, of course, I don't know Plato's like this, I think as well that. Um, they're stories and uh, narr- accounts, investigations that um, uh, are really just channeling something. Um, you know, what you're constantly trying to hear in what is ju- what's implicit in the text or what's just mm. on the other side of the text. Yes. So um, as you tune in to hear a bit more keenly, actually more and more uh, comes through, which at first just seemed like a sort of uh, a silence almost uh, or certainly confusion. Yeah, so, you know, they... They, they, you have to reread them because as you tune into them more, as you yourself um, are transformed, so you see more and more in them, in fact. Yes. It, some, sometimes you can have the sense that you, you get more and more into the frame of mind that Dante had himself when he was writing. 
and you, you kind of you gradually building that apparatus in your head or that that world or outlook and then it makes more and more sense <laughs> so yeah i mean there, there is this and there is the just getting to know it um and 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 being more familiar with the references and so on. But I think also that you, the thing about Dante is he doesn't just illustrate Christianity or even illustrate a spiritual path. Um, he, he, he takes it on, mm. you know, he's, he's wrestling with it um, and uh, wanting um, to see more than he's seen before, uh, understand more than he's understood before. And that spirit itself means that it becomes a bit of an infinite text yeah. um, that uh, constantly uh, reveals and shows up, shows up more and more. So in terms of going on a spiritual journey now, like how, for some people who are not familiar with Dante, like how, in what way can it immediately give some spark to something, do you think? Well, I think uh, it, it, what it helps you realize, um, is if you come from a more traditional Christian background, say, or in fact any traditional religious background, um, it's quite easy to approach these traditions as maybe moral systems, you know, showing you a good way to live with a bit of hope about the hereafter or something like that. Um, and, and I think what Dante um, offers, which I think is particularly needed in the Christian West, um, is um, that it's not really about a moral system. It's not about um, particularly a good way to live or a way to structure society or, you know, to be inspired. It's about a way of changing um, mm. and seeing more and more of reality. Um, and so, you know, which normally would be called the mystical tradition. Um, uh, and, and so it, that, that's really its value, I think, is that it, it's a, a text you can return to now because it helps to recover something mm. that's got almost completely lost. I mean, in my perception, I don't know what you think, but in my perception in the West. Yes, well, absolutely. I mean, I, um, for me, he is the big port. Well, he's the portal into the, to the ancient world. And and the whole of the tradition up to that point. But it is also a psychological or like a, a spiritual opener for you. And it, there's an immediacy. I mean, so I first just read a few cantos when I was 21, I think. And that was the opening, getting lost in the black, like a dark forest. And just the feeling was the immediately that this is just like now. I can recognize the feeling. And then you had the, 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 this, the portal on the, on the inferno, the canto three. And the last, well, a very famous sentence, but like, uh, well, lose all hope, you who enter. And then that, the worst thing is the loss of hope. It's, it's not the pain, but, <laughs> and I, I thought it was so deep in, a, in a, like a spiritual and psychological way. So I, I just got the connection, but then it felt so complicated. And it took almost well, over 15 years before I picked it up again. And I mm -hmm. looked a bit in the paradise, and especially I jumped to the end. And when he sees the divine in that was so shattering <laughs> because it was so strong and I just had to put it away. And I wonder what is this? Like, why is this so, uh, so disturbing almost to read. And then the more you dig into it, it's like, well, because he, <laughs> he puts in the deepest of the Greek philosophy and the biblical tradition and all of it together. It's uh, well, maybe this is a point of like the, the psychological insight is just way beyond what you've sometimes have the impression that modern psychology or, or theology is offering you, at least if you don't know it well enough. It's like he tells you something now that people in the contemporary times are not, you, you don't hear it. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, uh, certainly um, the more behavioral psychology, um, which is the stuff that gets more into the newspapers, you know, how to do this, how to survive that, mm. and the sort of tips and hints kind of approach. Um, I think, you know, Dante takes a very different approach which is, is more akin I think to psychotherapy which is to say do you know the struggles in life aren't um, really just about resolving so you can return to your old life the struggles mm. in life are the way the descent mm. say in the inferno is the way to go so the question then becomes well how can I possibly tolerate that how can I possibly undergo that um, uh, and then that starts to feel very very different that is quite a different attitude i think to have than you often come across anyway i mean i think it is the way that um british psychotherapy anyway it's a bit different in the us even but certainly um the psychotherapy that i've trained in um there is more openness to the idea um that the descent is what matters um if you can find someone to accompany you and help you through it 
Mm. Um, you know, you, you get it in more sophisticated Buddhism. There is there's the lighter Buddhism, which says, you know, a bit of mindfulness helps you get through the day. Um, there's the deeper Buddhism, which says, no, the obstacles are the way. Mm. And that is uh, much more akin with Dante, I think. But it's also, so the purgatory is maybe my favorite in some ways because it's so practical. And that's that also for everyone, like if you're listening, like it's a, that is not about the afterlife, I would say. That is about now and practical advice, what you can do now to to make a better life for yourself and transform gradually through through working on the the <laughs> if you have any issues or like the, the bad instincts or kind of this, if something about your moral system that is not working or it's not helpful for you, it could really, uh, I mean, so, so when the focus is transformation and renewal and rebirth, like the whole in the beginning when he picks up this little, um, uh, this little grass, like a, <laughs> to, mm-hmm. that's a, he, no, he pulls it up a reed, he pulls a reed up from the ground and immediately like a miracle, there's a new one. As, as, yeah, a, yeah. as a symbol for the whole <laughs> ascent up the mountain and, and the rebirth yeah. of, of nature. That's, uh, and it's full of beauty as well. So Yeah, I mean, just the, the way that, you know, the, well, the inferno ends and then the purgatory begins, that they come out from underground and he says, you know, we saw the stars. Yeah. You know, famously, each um, book ends with the word stars. And it's so moving. I mean, you know, you, in the, if you've undergone the journey, um, hearing Dante saying we saw the stars itself yeah. just causes a sort of rush of energy. It's quite uh, a converting in itself. So true. And it's, uh, it's one of, I mean, it's, it's after the whole book, there's four lines where they suddenly they're just out there. Like you go through the darkness into the deep, you climb through this little channel and then suddenly you're out it's within four lines. You, he, he makes this, 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 uh, appearance up in <laughs> under the stars um yeah it's, it's one of the most beautiful kind of uh, transformative and shocking kind of huge changes but i also i like the beginning when they meet kato it's so humorous but i guess that's a part of changing the mood when kato stands there as the guardian of the mountain and kind of a symbol of of a moral character and stoicism and <laughs> when he for example when he says why are you what are you doing here and like you come out on the side of the mountain and he says, have there been any changes up in the heavens <laughs> that I have not been told about? <laughs> like this, how the, how the bosses of the company <laughs> made some new rules. What is this? Uh-huh. So that's very funny. And then when Virgil says to Cato that, um, well, we're sent by Virgin Mary. And then, but then he keeps going and says that, oh, by the way, your wife is so nice and beautiful. And then Cato says, why are you flattering me? Just tell me you, you come from Virgin Mary. Like, there's no need for flattery <laughs> just uh-huh. you have the reason and there's such a like a human touch to all of that uh, yes yeah charm of dante as well but also the shock i mean i think that i i've i, I mean I, I haven't got to that point in my current reading yet but um <laughs> i'm wondering so it may may show all sorts of things up to me and like you're saying but i remember reading it before and um i felt that a lot of virgil's responses was a kind of embarrassed shock because what is cato doing saved you know, Cato is supposed to be a pagan. Mm. And I love, I think that's one of the deepest things that Dante kind of sets off is a spirit where everything that you thought you to be the case um, is subject to transformation. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think that's one of the things which I, I've got every time from the Inferno, um, uh, from, from the Divine Comedy, that um, it, it's, it, it's catalyzing change on all kind of levels. Um, yeah, so there's there's almost something biblical there with the, I mean, morality in the old biblical stories is very cryptic sometimes. Like Jacob tricks his father and becomes <laughs> becomes the heir and the father of the twelve tribes through deceiving his father, and but still he's the one who gets the blessing. So you have a contradictory and cryptic morals all the way as a. Yeah, it's hard to, to try to interpret it fully, but like, I think a, a part of that is to, to, to make you think again. Like it, it wants to just mess up your, your, your fixed view of things to, as a very kind of rough way of, of uh, 
yeah, kind of dragging of your thoughts or something. I'm not sure. But no, no, I completely agree. Yeah, um, you know, there's uh, well, the trickster in the ancient world, of course, too, is quite a, um, a, a present motif um, yeah. that uh, we get. We sort of fall into understanding the gods um, as much as work it out. Hmm. Um, um, yeah, so <laughs> that's a little bit, lots more to say about that. Um, yeah, but any final thoughts about Dante in addition to this before we move to your book? Yeah, I mean, I just encourage people to to have it, give it a go. You know, there's quite good translations around. I mm. personally quite like the one that's in the Penguin Classics translation yes. by Mark Muser, because I think that um, the translation is good, but also um, there's a lot of very helpful notes. You know, there's enough notes, but not too many notes. Um, and uh, yeah, just give yourself the time and um, enjoy it. Uh, it's, it, it, it's very gripping. It's very entertaining, as you're saying, as well as I'm um, so powerful. Yeah, you can sense a bit of the Italian. I think uh, like sometimes with Dante that he's <laughs> he's a bit like over emotional sometimes, and then he's a bit like he's exaggerating and uh, and uh, yeah, it's like this touch of and then emotion, and then suddenly this this tremendous beauty that just flows out, and then uh huh, uh huh. That's um, yeah, my admiration for for Dante is kind of <laughs> he's the most in some ways like he's he's so brilliant on so many different areas of writing. So uh, yeah, so that's uh, especially the humor bit kind of strikes you sometimes. That yeah, is, yeah, is adding yeah, that as true. well in in all the like the profound things he's doing. Um, yeah, so but also Virgil. Just one more thing about Virgil. Maybe he's he's. I'm still pondering this that like he is the symbol of the intellectual and the rational he's the guide for two books you have to go through the inferno with the sins to understand human nature and all the dark sides of it and then you get through the, the kind of the, the cleansing or the, the how to fix things and then when when virgil is crowning at the top in the garden of eden when he crowns the, the, the pilgrim like you're now the the lord of yourself i have taught you all i can that's uh it's really it's a um, it's it's a, it's a profound framing or like a, for the whole work and as your, your, your personal journey as well. So, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, it's truly so, astonishing. Yes. So, but it depends on uh, reading Dante. It's like, when should you do it? <laughs> when you said this with, um, with the paradise, uh, I had a friend in Italy and she always said, because they have to read the, the comedy for three years in high school. They have one year on each. Oh, right. Yeah. Every, every, like the teenager in Italy, they go through this and they think Inferno is fun when they're like 15, 16 years old, but then they have to go through the next two. And then the paradise, they say, oh, it's just like light and angels. Like they have no understanding of it when they're 17 or 18. So that's, if you start talking with people in Italy, that's still for many people, that's their memory of the paradise. It's just, yeah. So, so, well, they, they, they don't grasp it. And they, yeah. I mean, I guess it, maybe it's a bit like Shakespeare, you know, I mean, I was lucky enough when I was in my teens, we in England um, did, I remember we did uh, Romeo and Juliet, you know, which is at least a love story. So you can kind of get something out of it at that age. Um, but I think if we read The Tempest, um, mm. I would have thought it was just some, you know, mad story and I wouldn't have really got the point. Um, you know, you have to be, I think, at a certain stage in life to get uh, certain uh, things out of Shakespeare. Mm. Um, yeah, so I can I can imagine it might be the same. It's mm. tremendous to get an introduction to it at so young, but you hope it doesn't put people off as well. Yeah, there's a balance to it. Like they, you should know a little bit, or you get a taste of it, or enough that you remember it when you, and you can pick it up ten or twenty years later. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so uh, then I thought the next uh, the switch of gears for your book now. So and dive a bit into it. Um, and I thought, well, first the framing of the book for those who don't know it also. So Secret History of Christianity, in some ways it's about many things at once, I think. There's also a, a sweeping overview of 3,000 years of, of uh, European uh, history and, and culture. And it gives you a great introduction to the Greek and the Jewish and how they start to blend. And also this, this overall frame with the, the evolution of consciousness from being more um, in the framework of Owen Barfield that you go in three stages from the original participation and then through a withdrawal and then hopefully we're aiming for the reciprocal. So I just want to read uh, from the bit um, a paragraph here from, from the opening, from the introduction. Uh, so the first is the original participation. 
Uh, it dominates when there is little distinction between what's felt to be inside someone and what's outside because the boundaries of individual self-consciousness, which we today take for granted, are not in place. Life is therefore lived at the level of the collective. It is experienced as a continuous flow of vitality between what is me and not me, between mortals and immortals, between past and present, and also between other creatures and the human creature. The inner life of the cosmos is the inner life of the people. Early man did not observe nature in our detached way, Barfield writes. He participated mentally and physically in her inner and outer processes. And then you get the withdrawal, and then uh, you get this expansion of the inner world for people. So um, maybe ask you first, though. So the book has been out for half a year. The response, like this, this framework and the comment on the discussions uh, and conversations, how, is, how has it been? Have you learned anything new? Or surprising things? Yeah, it has been out. It came out just uh, autumn of 2019. So it's been out uh, a few months now. And um, I mean, in some ways, um, I, I've, I've really enjoyed the few months. I did quite a lot of talks and, um, you know, podcasts and so on. Um, and we had this uh, a day conference in London as well around Barfield's ideas. Um, and there's been a tremendous energy. Um, an interest um, around that, um, working with a couple of other figures who've done quite a lot on Barfield already. Um, so Gary Lackman would be one and Malcolm Guyte would be another. Um, but I suppose I've kind of tried to go for Barfield head on rather than build Barfield in discussions around, say, other esoteric thinkers or um, the Oxford Inklings with C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. So mm. to go for Barfield head on, you know, hence trying to tell the whole story of Christianity with Barfield's insights in mind. And I think that has been quite um, uh, invigorating for people um, to realize that Barfield's one of these figures that doesn't just have one or two good ideas, but he has an idea that goes to the heart of things. And that if you can spend time with it, it can really completely uh, refresh um, something that you thought you knew um, already um, or open something up for the first time. So I've enjoyed that energy. Um, I mean, I think the book um, is going to, hopefully it'll have legs now, you know, as they mm -hmm. say in journalism, it'll, uh, it'll keep, it's got enough momentum to kind of help keep it going so that uh, over time more people can discover it. Because uh, Barfield's not a household name, I'm not a household name, um, you know, so it's going to have to kind of get energy, which means it's going to have to speak to people as they are and, uh, you know, help them find new vistas to see. Uh, uh, mm. To, to tackle problems, whether they're Christians who kind of feel it's it's, it's losing its way a bit, or um, you know maybe spiritual seekers that um, might find they could find something um, uh, from the kind of in, indigenous religion of, of of the Western world, anyway, as it's been for the last two thousand years. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've enjoyed all that energy, and I'll keep talking about it. I mean, you know, Barfield's still very, very present. I'm reading Dante really through Barfield's eyes in a way. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it's it's been heartening. Um, but, you know, I still hope there's quite a long way to go. Um, I do think Barfield's really important. Mm. Well, what I think the book is doing is is, is um, trying to, to have a, a sort of assessment of where are we now in history <laughs> and what are the bigger kind of the, the forces or, or the trends and what could we expect for the next few centuries uh, maybe and then uh, it's, it's ambitious but but it's it's a great uh, it's very helpful in in at least getting your thoughts going um, also the introduction parts for the greek and the jewish is very interesting it it also made me through those and then reading even more of the Greek and the biblical stories to, to see how different they are as uh, like at the root of them, like the sources are somewhat far apart. <laughs> they don't overlap at the root of it, I think. So, but then they grow together in different ways, but it's very complicated. So, and that also, when you start thinking about that, it, it opens up the patristic era a lot because that's what they are working on. So just those first two chapters are helpful in, in that sense. Um, but what would you say in terms of like how religious or secular would you say the book is? That was something that struck me that you can, or just you say first. No, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope it's um, it's really interested about in inner life. 
um, you know, the kind of thing that gives our lives vitality and shape and purpose and meaning so we can sort of not just live our lives, but read our lives, read our times, uh, read our history and traditions and culture. Um, so, it, you know, it's, uh, it's not religious in the sense of about institutional Christianity. I mean, I personally think that institutional Christianity in the form of churches and so on often loses its way. Um, and it's, it's not secular in the sense I definitely think that the secular world too in the modern times, which in a way has tried to build itself, cut off from uh, the spiritual reality that our predecessors thought was fundamental. That's, uh, that's at the heart of a lot of our problems. But it's trying to, uh, I suppose, try and get a handle on both those aspects um, and through Barfield's ideas and the romantic tradition more generally with their key interests and in things like the imagination um, as a, a the imagination as a, as truth bearing as actually the way that we see yes. um yeah to, to to give that new life mm. no because i think you can you can read the book as a secular person and and enjoy the whole of it and just see this like that the inner life is, is growing and evolving the hezekiah bit is, is super i've been t- telling people about that many times just the two examples of of kind of uh, things that made this accelerate with when he moved the burials from from clan graves to individual graves because then you you end your life alone instead of ending your life with your clan that changes your feeling while you're alive of, of yourself and then the literacy rate that goes up from one to twenty percent and then when you sit alone with a book and read you have automatically a sense that this is within you and your inner world and then it changes how people relate to their their self and their identity um, so, so those are kind of really nice examples, concrete examples of, of how this process has st- started to change. But then, as you, you explained then, that how, when enough people have a sense of an inner world, in some sense, it's kind of just a matter of time before someone can come along and say, well, the, like the kingdom of the divine is in you and it would make sense for enough people so it actually changes something. So, yeah, any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I mean, that's again, it's, it's, you know, it's not unconnected to what we're talking about with Dante, that something is catalyzed um, and something kind of starts to unfold. This is the evolution of consciousness idea. And people are at the vanguards of that, struggling with it, wrestling with it, um, trying to not just understand it, but to live it, because mm. it only really materializes when it's lived. Um, and so hence, you know, this notion that in the West, anyway, Jesus became so important because um, he was perceived to have lived this unfolding um, sort of optimally. And once that's sort of done once in a way, then it becomes much easier for others to live it too. And so you get um, Christianity, not overnight, but over the next two or three centuries really takes off. Um, yeah. If, if you... If you think of uh, Isaiah, who is who is prophetizing this 700 years before, more or less, do you think a part of that is psychological insight as well? That you can see the trend in 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 humanity as like the the inner world, the spiritual world is growing. So then, like if you if you if you understand, like is mm. it could it be predictable if, so, if someone has uh, like a, a deep enough psychological insight to see that this will ultimately happen because of the human nature? I personally don't think it's predictable because I think um, spiritual evolution is about not just sort of more of the same, but better. Um, it is about radical changes um, uh, that something opens up that was just never really perceived before. I think that's the nature of human consciousness. Um, you know, I mean, you see it, I know you see it in the sciences too, that um, before the 20th century, the world of quantum physics, which still isn't well understood at all, but it was just inconceivable in the 19th century. Mm. Um, and now it's mainstream trying to grapple with this. And I think that someone like Isaiah, um, he knew something was shifting um, mm. and he struggles with it. You know, he suffers with it. Um, the most common thing that Isaiah says is, I don't know what the hell's going on, but I know something is. Um, and so he's at the, as it were, the beginning um, of real change. Um, and it's not until, um, well, just take the theme of monotheism. 
you know, by what's called, what, by what's now known as Deutero Isaiah. Um, so um, a, a later writer who got attached to the book of Isaiah. Um, it's only Deutero Isaiah who says um, not just that um, Yahweh is one God amongst many, but that there's only one God. And, and that took a very profound shift of consciousness um, mm. to be able to see that. Um, uh, and then, but that's not the end of the story either. Uh, what monotheism means for the individual then has a whole other sort of two or three centuries on. Hmm. Um, yeah, so it, it sort of it, it works a bit like that, I'd say. So it's a bit of a like on the side of like, but that part with monotheism, I um, a part of going through the biblical stories was to just uh, <laughs> going through old conceptions I had from a long time ago, and and then to think that well, monotheism is not like. Zeus becomes the only one and you wipe out the rest <laughs> is that you redefine your concept of the divine to be something much bigger like that is the everything so <laughs> and then more as the opening with like the source of all the spiritual beings and the spiritual beings but like you, you it's a it's a different way of thinking about the divine also it's a bit mm. on the side and of, and, and the individual though. i think i mean i think it takes a certain kind of individual to be able to perceive the oneness of God. You have to have a sense of your own kind mm. of integrity to some degree. I mean, even if it's pretty fragile and, and not very um, strong, but to at least glimpse it occasionally to see the oneness of the cosmos, you know, mm. which of course is then very different from the polytheistic view. Um, but then, you know, that's not the end point either. I think that uh, in a way what we're being called to do now um, is to re-perceive the rich ecology um, of the cosmos uh, and of course of nature as well that's it's it's a really urgent question now mm. um, but without losing the gains um, of um, you know the kind of monotheistic or the, the individual view mm. so um so back to to the kind of the overall framing of the book and then uh, so I enjoyed all parts of it and then to see the withdrawal of the participation that people start being more inside of like in the inner world, um, more cut off from, from the outer world and nature and, and, and sort of <laughs> your surroundings in many ways, but all the riches that came out of that. Uh, and then coming to the last chapter, I'm, I'm interested in that, like we should be mystic. So a part of this to, or maybe you could, with just lay out a bit like what should come as the next phase like the a rebalancing or the reciprocal participation or like you how that should be uh, experienced or like yeah, how that should be or how we should get there yeah well i think we're on the way um you know so uh we don't quite know uh the end point um and that's important because it's not like a program where you get told what you're gonna what skill you're gonna gain you know mm. before you you start as it were playing the piano um you yourself have got to change so you can't uh um imagine mm. uh, what, what the end point's like but i think that um the barfield uh sensed enough and i tried to communicate this in the book particularly by drawing on the romantic writers mm. um that um the imagination was central um, and the, in a way, a first task is to learn to trust um, the imagination that it's not just fancy, um, as Coleridge put it. It's not just, as it were, the random outpourings of the mind that really don't have any meaning, uh, barely any coherence, um, but that they are um, your mind flowing out into reality and then reality um, meeting that and, and flowing back into you. So imagination becomes inspiration. Um, and we've got to kind of get more skillful with that. Mm. Um, uh, partly um, being good with imagination, um, you know, which takes a certain kind of focus um, to even notice kind of what's going on with our imaginations day by day. Um, but then gradually feeling into trusting it to know that it is telling us about reality as well. Um, and, you know, this happens at an individual level mostly. Um, in therapy, um, you know, people will have dreams and at first they think dreams are fairly meaningless and then they start paying attention and then they realize that their dreams are actually telling them something about what's going to happen to themselves. Um, or another common experience is people might have the sense of synchronicities or some sort of even a super, what you might call a sort of supernatural experience. Um, and, you know, they might try and explain that away. They might think it's just random, meaningless, um, if sort of powerful. 
but gradually you learn to kind of go with those experiences and you realize they're actually you, they, they expand your soul um, but lead you into a much more expansive cosmos as well um, so I think we're in, in those kind of stages um, now I, I think that there's a shift in science too um, that uh, rather than science being seen as uh, this kind of sovereign uh, way of knowing um, that, that casts all other ends all other ways of knowing in the shade I think increasingly now quite fast actually now particularly with the ecological crisis um, we're, we're beginning to realize that science is just one way of seeing and that it needs to speak to others and we to use William Blake's phrase we need to move from single vision to fourfold vision mm. um, and I don't know I was listening to a geneticist just the other day saying that um, uh, it's increasingly realized now that genetics inside the cell operates at many, many different levels and each level is important, you know, from the gene to the genome, to the proteins, to the sugars, to the various workings within inside the cell, the cell itself. And then the cell itself is porous. Um, mm. and it's quite possible to see agency and all sorts of top down as well as bottom up effects occurring. Um, and her the talk, she gave the talk to say we need imaginative ways to Im to engage with this scientifically. Um, this is quite a paradigm shift for us in cell biology. Um, mm. and, and she's like a professor of of genetics and cell biology in a main main major university. Um, you know, so she, this is not fringe questions now. Mm. Um, so yeah, so in a number of different ways, um, I, I I think that uh, steps into a much more participative. Uh, experience where the subjective and the objective starts to come closer together where things that are felt and imagined matter as much as things that are proven and tested mm. so um, it's sort of it's, it's like watching out for that and and going with that when you notice that um in your own life or in um uh, in culture more generally and then go with that you know that that's the way to go it's a it's a path to follow mm. um it's a great point with the science because uh, i'm I'm going to try now to a little bit to to, um, to to see how this ties with the with the brain hemispheres. Uh, but just one thing about imagination, because I don't think you can, if you connect this to, to more like archetypes and, and Jung and kind of the um, the wirings and the blueprints you have in your biology, just by nature, and then how that bubbles up through your imagination. So when you, if you have like your fantasies, your imagination, or your like create creativity, or your dreams will be sometimes just rooted in your biology, but a part of the biology that you can't grasp rationally. So it just bubbles up as imagination or other kind of elusive <laughs> forms. Uh, but I always have this quote from <laughs> the old Greeks and Hesiod who wrote the Theogony. When he is just 30 pages, it lays out the whole of the, the, the pantheon of the gods for the, for the Greeks, but he starts like he's out shepherding and then he calls on the muses and then <laughs> so they they come they come to him and then the first thing they say to him so this is just an opening paragraph they say shepherds of wilderness wretched things of shame mere bellies we know how to speak many false things as though they were true but we know when we will to utter true things and that's kind of the <laughs> i think it's so brilliant because that's the warnings of this like yes your imagination they're just symbols of your imagination they can they can be brilliant but they can also be totally false and you can't always tell the difference so that's kind of their their little warning when they start talking to him and then uh, yes so said the ready voice it's a beautiful written <laughs> so said the ready voice daughters of great Zeus, and they plucked and gave me a rod of uh, uh, gave me a rod a shoot of sturdy laurel a marvelous thing and breathed into me a divine voice to celebrate things that shall be and things that were aforetime and they bade me to sing of the race of the blessed gods that are eternally but ever to sing of themselves, both first and last. <laughs> so that he also had to end with kind of talking about the muses. But um, uh -huh. for, for me, this is this is imagination. Like he just, there's an insight. Yeah. So, and as you're saying that it requires discernment, I think we're asked to discern. Um, and that's very much part of the path too. But I think one of the things which maybe we're learning again um, is the business of making invocations. Yeah. Um, that, that because... At one level, to make an invocation is to say, I'm open, which is obviously a really important stance to be able to develop. Um, but it's also to say um, there's a kind of vitality in the consciousness of the whole world 
uh, not just uh, inside my own head. And learning to trust that, as Barford put it, the inside of the whole world, um, I think is really a key step at the moment as well. Um, you know, we must, um, uh, uh, the thing about making invocations um, is that it, it sets you up in a kind of dialogue with the world. Yes. Um, and, and with the gods but, uh, once more. So, so I think something like that's got to return for us. And I'm thinking there with um, that, well, one thing is like, <laughs> this is something Dante is helping you do, especially in the paradise, I think. He builds a, a big structure, a rational structure that you can start experiencing your imagination, but also kind of the mystical or the mystery or there's something divine that you can start sorting it out. You have a filtering system to at least begin the process and then you learn more and more and you grow and, and you, you get more and more used to this. Uh, I saw another, uh, read another article about this, how like this revelation and, and reason, but you can, um, you don't have to put the boundaries for reason like as fixed and then think that everything outside it is, is uh, irrational or not trustable. So you just dismiss it. Uh, or, or like, uh, or that choice is to dismiss it or to just dive into it. You can take a little bit and then look at it, and then you can learn how to do this. And I think Dante is helping you with that. Um, and I also think I'm going to connect this to two other things at the same time. I think that is the Jacob's ladder. I think that's what he's doing. He get he opens the connection, and then the angels as messengers start flowing back and forth. And that is a part of that process that you can gradually do this and then you from him it gets more and more like stronger like with, with the stories that come out of that um, but you can also see this in terms of connecting your hemispheres i think so um and then just bring in a book here so we, we mentioned this a couple of times before on the podcast but uh, ian mcgillchrist with his master and his and the emissary and is his emissary because the emissary is the left hemisphere that's supposed to be an emissary but the left hemisphere has gotten too strong and, and tries to dominate and take control. And that is both for the individual and also for the culture at large. So the Gilchrist says this is a bit of the story that this happens like the last four or five centuries that the left hemisphere has taken over and it's reflected in the culture and in the architecture and it's reinforcing itself because you get the more functionalistic and kind of spiritually shallow or, or blocked environment to live in. And then the right hemisphere is increasingly not stimulated and then you get trapped in it. So, so one point you make with this is that the, the left hemisphere creates a self-reflexive virtual world uh, and it now has blocked off all the exits, the ways out of the hall of mirrors into a reality which the right hemisphere could enable us to understand. And he says this because usually you have a balance that you stimulate your right hemisphere through, for example, uh, arts and religion or the natural world which, from which we are increasingly alienated. So if you're not out in nature, you have no arts, you have no religion, it's more and more closed off. And then, uh, so it has then subverted and all the roots of escape from the virtual world has been closed off. So this, he explains as the trap of the left hemisphere. Uh, but then, as he says, the workings of the two hemispheres, uh, I'm just going to keep it short, but the left hemisphere is again, uh, that it builds uh, uh, an artificial, it builds to step outside the flow of experience and experience uh, our experience in a special way to represent the world in a form that is less truthful, but apparently clearer. And it makes us feel more powerful because we relate to the representation in our left hemisphere and not the real one. While the right hemisphere, uh, it allows things to be present to us in their uh, embodied particularity, uh, a part of the whole which is in forever in flux, the world, in this world, we feel connected to what we experience and a part of that whole. So the, the right hemisphere is just this, uh, just perceiving and, and interpreting, but it's not imposing a view on it. So it's, and it's more holistic as well. And probably where you get most of your imagination and your dreams and your religious experience comes through the right hemisphere. If any of this made any sense? Mm, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I'm, I can actually um, uh, have take credit for introducing Owen Barfield to, uh, or Ian, Ian McGilchrist to Owen Barfield, I should mm -hmm. say, um, because when Ian first wrote his book, um, 
uh, it, it was this very you know surprise success and but it's a very large book and then he was asked by the publisher to write a smaller um, essay which kind of summarizes it and if you, I, he actually begins with a quote from Owen Barfield um, which uh, was a quote that I suggested um, so yeah um, where about the meaning crisis essentially mm. and how it is that we can know more and more about the world and yet feel less and less connected to it and that spoke very powerfully that's what Owen Barfield says um, and um, that immediately spoke to Ian Gilchrist because he thought yes that's because um, the left hemisphere personality, if you like, which wants to probe and to measure and to fix and to pin down, um, is very successful at all that. Um, but it leaves behind the right hemisphere personality um, that is more open, expects the unexpected, doesn't rely, as it were, on the maps, but tries to connect with reality in itself. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so Barfield's uh, sense of things chime very directly with Ian McGilchrist, actually. But, and also their timeline is kind of overlapping. It seems like almost 100% that <laughs> that uh, this uh, or not well at least this the problem we have now that we're not connected anymore uh, I guess Barfield would say that happens a lot earlier than McGilchrist perhaps but but they meet that like we are now at the point where we should rebalance it and it seems like it could start in the person like if you can rebalance your your own brain hemispheres and create more harmony a connection and and uh, uh, listen more or maybe grow your right hemisphere a bit more mm -hmm. that will create a more balance and yeah yeah i mean because i think what mcgilchrist um, is saying is that uh, you know both hemispheres are sort of working all the time we only have one consciousness um we don't have as it were um two consciousnesses and we can sort of switch from one to the other um but it's about um i think uh um learning to trust certain intuitions um, and have uh, reason, as it were, realize that it works best when it discerns those intuitions mm. rather than um, a more common assumption now, which is that reason is sovereign. Uh, and if, you know, if it can't be proven, as it were, then it's uh, you just have to dismiss it. Um, so, um, you know, it's about turning to romantic traditions, for example. Um, it's about uh, reading poetry as well as uh, popular science books. Um, the funny thing is, you know, that. Um, I think all the great scientists did this anyway. Um, you know, Einstein famously make, makes these remarks that imagination traverses the world, whereas knowledge just kind of focuses on a bit of it. He didn't mm. put it exactly like that, but words to that effect. Um, so I think Ian's work is just drawing our attention to that. Using neuroscience, which of course carries great clout um, in the modern world. There's this slight irony that um, neuroscience is a rather left hemisphere activity. Um, mm. Uh, it wants to pin things down and map the brain, um, but uh, um, you know, in a way, that's the kind of that is the, <laughs> the emissary is is master. So you have to sort of bow to it a bit, but to try and undermine at the same time. But yeah. maybe the left hemisphere will discover its own boundaries or its limitations even more strongly, and then <laughs> maybe. Yeah, well, I think at the end of the day, reality speaks back. You know, both hemispheres, mm. as it were, stand before reality, um, and as long as um, there's enough openness to reality as it actually is, um, which, you know, in science means, um, you know, not closing things off because of ideology, you know, and, and the same in religion, not closing things off because of ideology. Um, then, you know, ultimately reality is what we all stand before. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, what, as it were, uh, creates a, a fuller view. And I also like, I'm, I'm a very, you know, passionate uh, lover of the renaissance and and florence i lived there for two years it's like for me it often strikes me as they really had this balance with the art and the science and that we can actually use that as an example as as a way to to rebalance things at this well individually and and there's something about especially reading the paradise because it it gives a safe way of of moving into the spiritual i think and it really keeps growing as something valuable and a richness to your life. And it makes you, the experience of life much bigger and more full of, of just what is it, joy, but, but of, of uh, substance and some kind of richness. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, I, th I do take broadly that, you know, the Renaissance uh, feels so rich to us because 
you know, when you look at a Renaissance picture, you get a sort of full consciousness experience. Um, and, and that's why it so profoundly appeals. Um, but I mean, just partly for the sake of interest, I slightly revised my view though recently. Um, I, I was in um, uh, Italy last year, uh, helping lead a sort of group, a sort of retreat. And we went to Assisi. Mm. Um, and so learned quite a lot about the Franciscans. And, um, and so a lot of quite a lot about Giotto, you know, who's kind of one of the early figures in the Renaissance, that art, much more sort of humanistic approach to things. Um, and I don't know what you make of this, but there was this other strand that started to emerge with the Franciscans um, with figures um, uh, after Francis, the kind of intellectual giants of the first century of the Franciscan world. You know, and they got very on to, because they were so interested in the natural world. Um, they got very into a sort of early empiricism in, in figures like Francis Bacon. Mm. Um, and then you have figures like William of Ockham, who's another Franciscan. You know, he actually was a Franciscan saying, um, you know, that maybe um, the names of things um, don't actually resonate with the souls of things. And maybe you can have thoughts in your mind um, that float free of the divine intelligence. You know, so he's at the beginning of this nominalist move. Uh, where um, at the same time, um, the kind of great uh, focus on the human, um, which we find so rich at one level, also starts to uncouple us, I think, from the spiritual ecology of the cosmos, from the divine. Mm. Um, so I, I know I feel a bit more mixed now about the Renaissance. Well, it, um, it, you know, the, at the same time as it being incredibly rich, maybe it's also at the seed of our, our present ills as well. Well, it could, <laughs> it could be a transitional point that actually led us right into the problems. Uh, that is one way of looking at it. But uh, it reminds me of Assisi. Just, I was there oh, 10 years ago, some, yeah, more or less. But I remember walking up there and sitting outside, like <laughs> on the hillside, and just having that thought, like, because it's, like the, it's just the weather, like the, <laughs> the sunshine, the, the natural beauty with the, with the rolling hills. It's kind of it's Tuscany. And uh, it's just not Tuscany. It's uh, what's the region? Um, it's, yeah, uh, um, it's an hour south of it, more or less. Uh huh. Uh -huh. It'll come to us. Umbria, yes. Umbria. Um, yes, Umbria. So, but you sit there, and so it's the same climate zone. And then you, I was just thinking, gosh, they've picked a nice place to think, <laughs> just uh -huh. to uh -huh. just to just to um, contemplate and feel and be, and and kind of going deep in your thoughts. That that was I really like. They found. They made a good, good choice. <laughs> and then yeah, no, this them. is a uh, very beautiful place. Yeah, very beautiful place. And there is something about like what grows out of that, like with the Franciscans and, and him. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's a bit similar, like a bit on side again, <laughs> but if you go to Vinci, like this town where Da Vinci, Leonardo Da Vinci comes from the town called Vinci, and then his birthplace is up on the hillside. And I had the same feeling there. You look out like at landscape and you had the sun and it's like 25 degrees. And just think, this is so fertile for a brain. Like if he grew up in this, no wonder that brain becomes something extraordinary. So um, yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, people lived there for a long time before the Renaissance. So I think True. you know, you again, you have to see the landscape in a particular way in order to have to feel inspired by it. Um, and and presumably, you know, people before would have looked at the same landscape um, and not you know, enjoyed it for its own sake, for example. Mm. And maybe their attention was more on um, the divine aspects or maybe just the kind of the spirits of the landscape rather than the beauty of the natural world itself. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. I was just thinking in terms of if you, if you then go to, or if they went to Florence and they, they, they enjoy the marvels of, of the, the human-made culture and beauty, but then they go there and they look at pure nature alone and they have a different kind of, it will, it will, broaden their horizon of experience kind of what they draw from spiritually i would think mm -hmm. um okay so but we, 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 we all just to say of course that you know dante's from florence but um you know he, he wrote a lot of the divine comedy and certainly the paradise mm. um, when he was exiled from florence florence mm. was a bloody and brutal place as well you know, as comes up many times in the divine comedy so it's a bit of both and it was this most incredible um, seedbeds of, uh, of creative imagination and ideas, but at the same time was a sort of brutal place where um, people um, whose li their lives were destroyed. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, 
Dante descends because his life was destroyed. Um, yeah, so true. It's, it's, and the next it, century with the Medici family, it's, it's not. <laughs> it's a huge yeah. contrast between the, the few on the top who who uh, pays for all the art and all the beauty to to make Florence the most uh, just shining city in the whole of Europe as a in part as a project for the Medici since they were not kings, they were not blue blood. So it, it bothered them forever. So they made up new titles like Grand Dukes and all of this. And they, they invested in arts in part to, to <laughs> I yep. wouldn't say compensate, but it was at least a motivation for it. Yeah. Um, true. So, but Dante did write, I think most of the paradise at least in Ravenna, which is also a really beautiful city. So, mm-hmm. uh, I think he had good days there towards the end of his life. Yeah, and actually, I think the the mosaics in Ravenna yes. feel much closer to the Divine Comedy, mm. I think, than anything you find in Florence. True. Um, it's a lighter know, the, feeling the, in Ravenna. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And it's close to the sea as well. So, uh-huh. um, yeah, so the last little topic I thought uh, we could end with, and maybe, uh, so it, it ties into some of this, but this is the... Um, I heard you, you mentioned this in the Q&A before, but then uh, the medieval uh, thought that the purpose of the earthly life was to increase your understanding of the divine essence. And then this could be then, well, we can tie it into that. You, you want to establish a connection to your right hemisphere. Or you want to start your spiritual life and then you want to learn more of that to, to, to have a bigger understanding. Um, but you mentioned something that you also were thinking about this more for your own, uh, like what you spend your time on <laughs> as, a, as a, something to, kind of, uh, a goal for the life at the moment. So if you can say a little bit about that. So, I mean, one of the things which actually I'm thinking quite a lot about at the moment um, is death mm. and um, whether it's possible um, to um, think about death and experience death, relate to death in 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 different ways you know so i guess you could say that a dominant way that death's approached now is that it's the end um and um that the aim therefore is to kind of live uh, a good life in the sense perhaps having good relationships maybe certain experiences um and then uh, minimizing the trauma of death um which you know it, it completely makes sense in a way um, but I'm wondering, again, whether part of the problem for Western Christianity is that it's got too um, timid and maybe even uh, too ignorant of um, what might lie on the other side of death. Um, and that um, the relationship between life and death now um, can be seen in some ways as preparing us for um, what happens when, you know, physically we die. Um, so I, I, yeah, and how one can have intimations of life beyond life mm. in the here and now um, really fascinates me. Um, and if that sounds a bit abstract, I mean, I think one of the ways which this is sort of is stirring for me, at least, is that in psychotherapy, um, you know, which is a, a main part of my daily practice uh, and work, um, you it's very you very often, very readily every day, you know, kind of have different ex- different experiences different levels of consciousness um, but with the client and you know for example when you're doing deeper work because time changes um, its feel its shape Um, and uh, at the deepest level um, you enter relatively sort of timeless zones you might say um, that have a kind of quality of eternity to them Um, and but it it requires giving up uh, a bit like the master in his emissary, it requires giving up a certain control or power or mm. sense of self in order to enter the, to those deeper levels of time and eternity. Um, so I'm just wondering whether there's, rather than death being seen as this kind of abrupt thing that stops it all, whether actually there are kind of deaths which are much closer to us uh, in everyday life, um, but that they open onto a deeper kind of life. Um, and so um, how... I'm, I'm just very fascinated in holding on to this at the moment um, mm. when I'm with people and thinking, you know, what's this telling me about life beyond life or the deeper flow of life um, that uh, our uh, more physical lives seem to uh, lose touch with or even exclude? Um, yeah, so life mm. and death are big themes for me at the moment. Mm. Well, that, that is the <laughs> one of the biggest themes you can 
Love and Death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> two, two big themes. Um, okay, so um, that was the last thing I had on my list. Uh, and then, so I think we're going to wrap it up here. Um, I just want to say thanks again so much for doing this. It's been a huge pleasure and an honor as well. Uh, and do you have any final plug at the end? Something you want to... Last yeah, well, look, so, let me say thank you to you for picking, um, you know, the book up and other things that they resonate with what you're interested in, because, you know, we want to have conversations. I think another, perhaps another really important thing is that when things get going in between us, mm. um, you know, Jung talked about the transcendent function, mm. um, which is when, you know, two people meet or two ideas meet, two experiences meet, and it's in the tension or the d discussion between them that something new emerges. Mm. Um, you know, so it's really important uh, um, what we share and what we try and do together as well as what we try and do on our own you know, when we're doing our podcasts or whatever. The, the conversation as, as a creative project, that you actually create something in the conversation <laughs> that it gets yeah. a life almost <laughs> that's uh... and also in the in the listening you know hopefully people who have been listening to this having their own ideas mm. their own experiences will seem that bit more vital or alive or they'll discern something different in them um mm. through the listening it's really it's absolutely crucial mm. great so um well i hope we do can do it again sometime and um just want to say to everybody out there finally as always thank you so much for listening and see you again soon here on the Ancient World Podcast. Welcome to another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today, we talk brainstorms with UX designer Brian. Let's go. First question. You thought you'd see everyone's idea in the team brainstorm, but you've got a grand total of one. Drawing board or Miro board? Drawing board, right? Because in Miro, the team can add ideas now or later. And with privacy mode, we can keep them anonymous until they're good to share. Correct. Next, you need the best way to explain your idea, but all you have is a few sticky notes. Drawing board or Miro board? Drawing board, because, you know, in Miro, I could record videos, add text, images, links, and digital sticky notes, of course, present my thoughts the way I want. Right again! Now, you're looking for a past idea you thought was just genius. Only you could find... Oh, there it is. Drawing board or... Miro. All our finished and unfinished work lives in one place. And he's one. Join over 60 million people getting ideas noticed in Miro Brainstorms. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.